You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, White Sox fans, guess what? Sooner than you might have even guessed, it is time for another Southside Sox Mothership Podcast. This one's number 85. I'm lucky enough to be your host, Brett Ballantini. And with me, just one guest. It's not it's not a party call this time. Simply talking, and it's going to be a great talk, with Zach Hayes. Zach, thanks for hopping on. Thank you for hosting me. The reason we are talking, and it's uh, in-depth, very serious one-on-one is because as you doubtlessly already seen, we have published our take on the Pakoda projections for 2022. Zach Hayes has authored that. It is an exhaustive look at them, uh, some great interpretation of the numbers and uh, combined with um, Zach's uh, take how maybe uh, a baseball pr- prospectus is maybe contradicting what he was thinking, maybe how some of their numbers and projections are maybe forcing him for good or bad, to revisit perhaps what he would have thought uh, going into 2022. But the good news is, if you haven't already heard the story, well, listen, you can pause this and go read it. You can read along as you're listening to us. There's a lot of combinations here. Try each one on for size. Uh, But the projection for the White Sox this year is 94 wins. And I will say right off the bat, that this will be the first time since 2005 Pakoda has taken a White Sox team projected for the playoffs, uh, coming off of playoffs uh, or projected for playoffs, and actually given them a very healthy uh, uh, ranking here with 94 wins. Uh, are you, sh- I guess the first question is, are you shocked? Yeah, I'm, I'm was pretty surprised to, to see it, not just because of the, the history of, 
I don't want to say underrating. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that the White Sox team building strategy has generally not been one that's super analytic friendly or one that generally adheres to the same values that go into the um, the philosophy of BP's war. And it's also because, you know, they're running it back for the most part, not too many major additions. It's mostly the same group of folks who was projected for uh, 83, 84 wins last year. So with another, you know, solid year to add to the track record there, I was expecting it to go, to go up a bit, but, uh, jumping up to 94 wins, which is third in the American league behind, um, maybe fourth behind the Astros and the, uh, Blue Jays, I believe like that was, yeah, that's, that's not something we've seen very often or, or ever <laughs> coming into a season for the Sox. Now, Zach, you are, uh, one of our many numbers guys, even though really you're right. Or as, as we've already decided, you're doing a lot of minor <laughs> league recaps this year and you may have no choice because they're right. Oh, yeah, right. Time. <laughs> that's uh, all we're going to get. However, you know, you may not have known I'm a numbers guy too. And I crunched some numbers. Yes, I hit the button. I found, finally found it on the laptop here. And I, I hit the crunch button. It crunched these numbers for me, Zach. Nine times uh, baseball perspective has been under, ha- has underserved the White Sox in terms of wins. And eight times they've actually overprojected. It seems particularly annoying to White Sox fans because they tend to be terrible when the Sox, White Sox do well. Of course, the, the crowning achievement for baseball perspective was underserving the White Sox by 19 wins in 2005. But in 2008, they were double digits uh, underselling them. Uh, and in these last two years, the back-to-back playoff seasons for the White Sox, in both cases, uh, baseball perspectives, uh, undersold with uh, Pocota with the White Sox. Uh, when you really add it all up together, They've shorted the White Sox by 41 wins, which is still pretty significant. It's not nothing. Uh, it certainly betrays this whole nine seasons negative, eight seasons positive. Uh, but 41 wins, about two and a half a year. Uh, what Pakota has done has also interpreted uh, or projected the rebuild very poorly. They've been very, very sunny on the White Sox in the latter 2010s. Uh, six more wins than they had in 2016, nine more than 2017, 10 more than the hideous season of 2018. Probably when they came out with the 72 win projection, we were like, we were probably howling at that time. Oh, it can't be. Well, maybe we weren't because it was 2018 and they were horrible. Uh, And a mere two wins in 2019. So if you take away the fact that they very badly missed on how bad or how painful the rebuild's been, uh, Pakota would treat the White Sox even uglier than it turns out. They have all these meaningless seasons. They've sort of uh, come across as more reasonable uh, across the board going back to 2005. Uh, I think uh, another thing that uh, stunned me in crunching those numbers, you know, the machine didn't do all the work for me. I interpreted a couple of things. 2006, the White Sox are coming off of a 99 win season. uh, uh, Start to finish first place. Uh, and in 2006, a team that did fall short of the playoffs with 90 wins, Pakota said the White Sox would win 82 games in 2006, a 17-win drop from a World Series team. Now, granted, you could say, oh, my gosh, there were, there were, there were some career years, but, and, and the White Sox, I guess, must with the formula a little bit more than they are going into 2022 by trading Aaron Rowan, et cetera, but uh, that probably between missing so badly in 2005 and then doubling down and saying, no, this team still pretty much sucks. They're going to win 82 games uh, after their ring ceremony. 
uh, probably has gotten the well-deserved disdain from White Sox fans, even all these years later. But we're here to say right up top, Zach, it's better days. It's a 94-win team. It's it's sunnier, that's for sure. I think there's a couple of things we're talking about there is that, yeah, like I, you can imagine that when you win the World Series and then you win 90 games and you're projected to be about 500 for both of those, I definitely understand where where the ire from the fan base uh, comes from. And it's kind of a joke, I think, you know, that comes from people who make projection systems where, you know, it, the projections hate your favorite team. They always do. And and that's just kind of the nature of the conservative nature of projections and averages. Cause you know, if you think about it, I don't, you know, if you don't look at the actual uh, you know, win loss totals, you're looking there nine seasons better than average or better than the projection and eight seasons less than the projection means that on average, it's fairly works out to being fairly accurate. And uh, the other thing is that, you know, the formula has evolved tremendously. It doesn't resemble anything close to what we had in 2005 and 2006. I suspect if you went and ran the numbers um, with whatever they're using now, with whatever, if you had the information in 2005 uh, that we have available now, it would probably see something sunnier in, in the 2005 and 06 White Sox. And the same principle kind of applies to those last few years when they're actually projecting them to be a little better than the rebuild turned out to be is that uh, I said this to you right before is that these systems do not like uh, projecting extreme outcomes because by nature, it's all about regressing to the mean is a really oversimplified way of, of, of putting it. But, you know, I'm looking at the, you know, this year's projections right now and, the Baltimore Orioles are projected to go 62 and hundred. Uh, that's really kind of the, you have to be really, really, really bad to get lower than that in one of these systems. And I think we can say now that, you know, the, the state of the Orioles entering this season is as bad as those 2017 and 2018 White Sox were uh, a lot, a lot more discombobulated and just a lot less upside there. So um yeah, the, the kind of the, the nitty gritty of overshooting or undershooting by four or five wins and losses kind of misses the point because you're calculating a very large range of outcomes and going with the one in the middle that seems like it's that usually winds up being the most reasonable. But it's really much more of a spectrum and it's more about getting an idea than it is about saying, OK, you can expect them to win this many games. You know? It'd be interesting to know what maybe the average miss per season for or teams are. I mean, the White Sox, whether they're just wildly erratic or the system, or, or as maybe as you implied, the system just isn't built for a, a strange team like the White Sox because plus or minus, uh, the system hasn't really come close on the White Sox. They're a game off in 2007, three games off in, <laughs> they bought into the all in season, three games off in 2011, one game off in 2012. And then 2014 and 15, two games off. Those are the only seasons here in this whole sample. Uh, 2019, also two games off. We're not counting 2020 because you'd project 162 games. Uh, so really just a handful that they came close on. It's either like way positive in a couple of cases, or way negative in a few more cases. Uh, and, and who knows, maybe that is all teams experiences. Maybe Blue Jays fans are uh, grinding their teeth because, you know, the Dakota missed by like 25 one year. I, I don't know. But uh, that jumps out at me too, that, you know, it's not, uh, the, in the end, it seems like it's, pretty reasonable and pretty close uh but season to season uh it seems often i don't know maybe that's just the ken williams magic or what but uh yeah there's just so many things that can happen over the course of the season that it's never going to be able to anticipate and that like i said it's good for getting an idea preseason a lot of the time it's not so great for retroactive 
analysis where I looking at the the White Sox this past year, they they ended up outperforming that projection by about 10 games. And it's not because the system was particularly wrong about the players who are on the White Sox is that the system uh, didn't foresee when all of these injuries happen, when players inevitably do sometimes undershoot their projections. It didn't see Gavin Sheets coming up and hitting 11 home runs. It didn't see Brian Goodwin, you know, putting the clutch gene on, on display. It didn't see Larry Garcia putting up a 125 WRC plus in the second half. And that's not to say, I don't think that has much as much to do with flaws in the system, although there are always flawed. There's a lot of things they can't see. And I talk about that quite a bit in, in the article uh, is that it tells you that if the White Sox want to overperform their projection by 10 games next year, they have to get that. That's the kind of unexpected contribution they need to get. And, you know, that's not going to happen every year. So it, you know, you still learn something, but I don't think it's as when those things happen, it's rarely as much of an indictment uh, on, on these, these formulas and these uh, calculations as people seem to think. Uh, (laughs) The, uh, before we get into breaking down some, some actual players, we might talk about, who knows, maybe every single person uh, player you, you uh, write on in the story. We'll see. Uh, I do just want to clarify a little bit because as I uh, admitted to you before we went on, you know, my eye is trained for the baseball reference and fan graphs war uh, baseball reference, I believe still in its key sort of tabs, at least roughly a five war season being an all-star level. Uh, and, and so that's what I'm sort of trained to see. You see a lot of the numbers that the Pocota system and, and what baseball, what the warp uh, system from baseball perspectives churns out. I think because they suspect that a replacement team would do a little bit better than those other two uh, other war systems do, uh, we end up having a little bit more muted war figures. And so if our eye is trained to like f- five as an all-star, we're going to come away a little bit um, parched in looking over your article and seeing what even some of the brighter uh, projections are for White Sox players. So in your estimation, you know, what, 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 how should we adjust our eyes, especially any of us who are maybe even novices uh, in terms of just Warren trying to figure it all out, uh, when we look at the, uh, this Pocota article and, and Warp in general, uh, how, how, what sort of adjustment should we make, if any? Yeah, just take it down a notch for what you're thinking with um, your usual war totals that you're looking, looking at. Uh, it's helpful to know the major differences between the three is that the way I think of it, at least, and I'm not, to be honest, I'm not entirely clear on a lot of it either. It's a real, real arcane stuff. And I'm, (laughs) I'm just grasping at straws half the time too. Uh, Baseball reference tells you what actually did happen. It uses runs allowed. It uses, um, it doesn't use things like FIP and inputs that are supposed to measure what, you know, what a player deserved, uh, which is what Fangraphs uses, uses, which is why, you know, for baseball reference uh, is usually good for saying, okay, this guy was this valuable uh, relative to the rest of the league. You know, you can say that in, in, you know, 2018 or whatever, Mike Miner maybe should not have gotten eight wins worth of results from his pitching for reasons X, Y, and Z, because he got lucky in all these ways. Uh, so Fangraphs is only going to give him five war, but at the end of the day, he did get some of those. Those are the results that he got on the field. That's what happened. Uh, so the baseball reference war is going to be a lot higher. And as a result, you have different uses. Like I like to use the baseball reference war for retroactive analysis and tell you what's actually happening on the field, who performed better. Whereas fan graphs, uh, 
is much more predictive. It's more saying, you know, uh, okay, if, you know, player X had eight reference war and five fan graphs war, you can say, okay, he's probably more likely to be in the realm of that fan graphs war next year. Um, the baseball reference doesn't necessarily have a lot of year over year holding value and baseball prospectus with warp is even more on the fan graph side of uh, inputs that have more to do with processes and underlying metrics and what in theory might've happened and should have happened. And uh, the result of that is that, well, A, it's kind of hard to talk about because a lot of the stuff they use is their own proprietary formulas. It's like deserved runs allowed and um, deserved runs created. And, and the formulas for that are all behind, yeah. not available to the public. That's all the stuff they do. And uh, I think that those are probably generally more reliable than most of the public metrics we have. But another result of that is that the totals or the... Um, the values tend to be a little more clustered. You're not going to have as many players who are truly elite as you do where, you know, with baseball reference war, where you can have a rando stumbling into a seven or eight war season, because that's sometimes what happens, even if they don't necessarily deserve it. And uh, warp isn't going to give players credit for that necessarily. So uh, um, it has a lot of predictive value, but it's also because of the, again, inherently nature uh, conservative nature of these things, it's just not going to project a lot of guys at four or five war. It's going to, you know, if you're, if you're projected for a two or a 2.5, that's actually a pretty good thing, even though you're kind of trained to think, yeah. Oh, that's an average performance. Mm-hmm. No, if, if the formula is saying that you are almost certain, you know, 50, 60, 70% of your outcomes are at least average, which is what, you know, a two, 2.5 war projection is saying, that's a really good thing because there's not a lot of players who have that level of certainty to them. There's a lot of variance that happens. So if it's confident enough to even say this is probably at least a solid regular, then take that to be a good thing. You know, as the, as you, as you read Zach's story and you see some of these numbers and think, boy, this, this is not really ringing. Uh, this is ringing a little hollow with some of the uh, optimism. Just keep, tie that into what Zach just said in terms of it being just a little bit more um, tempered number in general. And then also keep connecting to the fact that somehow this team is going to come together and put together 94 win uh, as projected by Pocota. So keep that in the back of your head, even if it seems like, wow, how can this be? There's like one guy who's really seems to be like a breakout superstar. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to talk about the real good stuff. <laughs> Sorry, we're burying the lead here. <laughs> the real good stuff in the second half, which is some of the individual player projections. We'll do that in just a minute. Stick with us. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hey, White Sox fans, guess what? We are talking Dakota with Zach Hayes. 
It's podcast number 85. I'm Brett Ballantini. I'm trying to make sense of it. I'm going to try to ask intelligent questions uh, and not just insert jokes. But let's first say, because we're devoting this entire podcast pretty much to baseball perspectives and their Pakoda projections, you really ought to consider spending more time over there at BP, consider actually subscribing to their service and supporting them in the way they need to be supported. Uh, because let's face it, uh, this is a whole podcast we're devoting to it, a whole long article from Zach, some incredibly good analysis from him, only because this group that's been around a long time has put together this very, very insightful uh, formula. Even though they've locked it away, they don't want to tell us what it is. That's the right. Uh, we're interpreting it. Zach's interpreting it. I'm just trying to follow along. Uh, so consider visiting there more often and definitely consider subscribing uh, because it is a great, great site, really key and arguably maybe the best of the bunch. Uh, and hey, Zach, you wrote 3,000 or something words. Again, probably by this time, pause and read. They're reading along as we're talking. So they know this is an in-depth piece. And somehow, Zach, you managed not to just clip like four paragraphs at a time or just reproduce the entire Pakoda projection with the White Sox in your article. Congratulations for not doing that, you responsible young man. The bar is in the basement, <laughs> you might say. <laughs> All right, let's start with the best news. And that is somehow Yasmani Grandal is going to still fire people up and freak people out because he's not going to hit for a high average. But not only is he projected as the very best catcher in the majors at an advancing age, but the fifth best player, player, position player in all of the majors, which, wow, I could not have woke up on Christmas morning and hoped for something better than that. Uh, how, how can that be, Zach? Yeah, so the answer is is relative value is that um a there aren't a lot of very good catchers out there. There's like maybe 10 decent catchers and the rest of them there's a reason Jeff Mathis had a job for 15 years, you know. <laughs> uh just finding competent bodies who can play a solid made catcher at the major league level is really hard. Uh so catchers by definition are more valuable uh on these scales like a good catcher is going to um, a catcher who hits is naturally going to be more valuable than a first baseman who hits at the same level because first baseman who can hit 240 with 25 homers or a dime a dozen, um, not so much with catchers. So it's A, the catchers are inherently quite valuable, and B, that Yasmani Grandal is head and shoulders the best catcher in baseball all around. Uh, by most measures fit, um, excuse me, uh, BP puts a lot of value on framing and stuff like that in their uh, defensive calculations for catchers. And Grandall is really, really tie. He's always graded out really well uh, in the receiving aspect. And in spite, I know there's people might have some problems with that because let's the ALDS performance was not great. Mm. Uh, it's worth remembering that he was like, you know, 55 days or whatever removed from knee surgery <laughs> when that happened. So I, yeah, I dare you to try to squat down for three hours a day, two months out of knee surgery. So I'm not concerned about that. Uh, he's going to walk a ton. He has some of the best plate discipline in the majors. The number of players who you can confidently project 85, 90 walks from is pretty low. And that's what they're giving to him while only playing, you know, 115, 120s, 20 games worth of that bats, which is going to be low because he's going to be playing first base a lot when he's not catching. Um, so all of that adds up to just a really valuable player overall, even if none of the numbers themselves pop out at you. Uh, 
he's consistent for better or for worse. If you, you might not like the batting average, but he's never hit below 220. He's never hit above 250, really. Uh, and that's fine. That is perfectly fine. If there's a guy who you know, okay, he's only going to hit 235. He's almost certainly, if he's healthy, going to give you 20, 25 homers. He's almost certainly going to give you 80, 90 walks. Um, he's almost certainly going to give you great defense behind the plate. He's a switch hitter. There just really aren't any too many weaknesses in his profile. And he's done it for long enough and done it consistently enough that, yeah, you can say with pretty fair certainty that not only he's going to be one of the two or three best catchers in baseball. And just by virtue of that and being uh, by being at the top tier of that top tier is going to be by definition, one of the most irreplaceable valuable players in the game. So that's how you get to that. And those numbers are all great, Zach, but I need to know the Hayes warp uh, estimate for 2022 in terms of folks just not getting his value. Is it going to, is it going to outpace last year or is it going to actually fall short of last year? It's man. I have to wonder. I I don't think he's going to come in doing the thing where he hits like 100, but with a 450 slugging (laughs) percentage. That was so they're that's still nuts. very lit. You can't really explain that. I don't think that's going to happen again. And I think if you don't have that like weird visible disconnect, uh, I can see how it's really hard to sell saying a 150 batting average isn't actually all that bad. I get why it's not all that bad, but I really don't blame someone uh, for seeing that and being like, what the hell? So. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to happen again. So I would hope that the debate will be a little bit more muted this year. Uh, He also, I mean, he was so good with the bat when he came back in August and September, if he's anything Mm -hmm. close to that. I mean, you know, I I would have hoped that that settled a lot of arguments in and of itself, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't foresee him being a very interesting subject of debate. That horse has been pretty well, pretty well beaten dead. Yeah. Yeah. But it beats talking about Tony La Russa, Zach. Uh, okay, we're pretty much uh, we're pretty much going to count. We're going to just move down uh, most of the players Zach is addressing the story. So again, clip and save, pause and read, come back to us. Whatever combination you need to do, you know, try on uh, uh, several different ways of doing it here. But next up in your story is, I think, sort of good news for what um, promises to be a solid, if not strong, if not baseball or AL best. Uh, bullpen and that's led by uh, Liam Hendricks projected to be uh, pretty much just as good as last year which was pretty darn good and Aaron Bummer as the guy who in theory in theory depending on how many trade partners Han has lined up from his kids table uh, for Craig Kimbrell uh, Bummer being the guy who is going to be the de facto uh, set up in in certainly more cases than not even with uh, Kendall Graveman uh, in the fold uh you take those projections for those two key bullpen members as a a real good sign for another strong bullpen uh, outing for the white Sox in 2022 yeah Hendricks is projected uh to be the best reliever in baseball for what like the fourth straight year he's been the best reliever since 2019 like hands down it's not even close uh and, you know, he doesn't fake it. He throws 101 miles an hour with great command and has two wipeout breaking pitches. You can't fake that stuff. And relievers, hard throwing relievers, pitchers are always volatile and there's a lot of injury risk always, but there's no reason to believe he's not going to be probably the best closer in baseball until we see some of that fall off. Like there was no, no sign of, no sign of a downturn last year. There's no reason to to predict one until we see it. And Bummer might have actually been one of the most surprising things about these projections overall. He's projected to be one of the uh, 
one of the top 15 or so relievers in baseball uh, by median projection. And that is, uh, as I've said about five times, these projections are inherently conservative mm-hmm. and you're not going to project a lot of relievers for a two, seven, two, eight ERA, unless there's a lot of history there, unless it's someone like Liam Hendricks, who has proven over and over again, that they're elite. Uh, but they, the system really, really likes Aaron bummer. Uh, and it really like, I mean, he gets ground balls 70% of the time he throws 95. He added a wipeout slider this past year. So he can actually get strikeouts when he's not getting ground balls. We know what Tony LaRusse's philosophy about shifting and general defensive management is I'm and enough has been said about it. So there is a chance that he ends up underperforming that he ends up with like a mid threes, low fours, even ERA. If players just can't pick up the ball when they hit it on the ground. But if they have a moderately okay defense, that's not going to do what happened in the sixth inning or seventh inning of game four (laughs) um, or game two, excuse me, this past October, you know, when we saw about five pretty routine ground balls sneak through holes where Astros defenders always had guys, you know, maybe that's going to happen a hundred times. I don't think so. If it doesn't bummers, he's going to be a better reliever than, than Craig Kimbrell. He's going to be, probably the one of the two or three best setup men in baseball. I'm not even sure that we as a fan base who have been pretty appreciative of him over the last few years and yelling like, you know, no one really knows how good this guy is. I think this is the year where we really start to people start to realize how freaking good Aaron Bummer is. And uh yeah, I didn't even talk about Craig Kimbrell in this article because I'm hoping he's probably not going <laughs> to be the team. Uh he might he'll probably bounce back. He's not going to be as bad as he was yeah. in August and September, but they I don't think they're going to need him as much. You can never have enough pitching, but if you can, I think bummer is going to be that guy. I think he's really going to be the stopper that some of us were kind of expecting him to be this past year, maybe. And uh, for any, anyone listening, um, watching or reading, you think we tend to be too hard on the white Sox? Well, we don't with fans, you know, we, we love them to death when they're doing great and we get angry sometimes even when they're doing great, because they could be doing better. We certainly get angry when they lose a hundred games, like they did a few Years ago, uh, but let's uh, take a second and say uh, Rickon's extension, early strike extension of Aaron Bummer, um, just like the contract for Liam Hendricks, which, you know, is, you know, by no, no means a guaranteed great done deal, but boy, sure is looking like it. Uh, Aaron Bummer's uh, even better. This is a guy who's going to be producing actual wins above replacement, however you wrap it, uh, probably year after year, and he's locked up for Let's just say nothing. Uh, so, you know, certainly kudos there. Uh, might not want to listen to the very end of this podcast if you're very happy right now, White Sox front office and what you've heard, because it is going to turn a little bit darker later on. But we'll get to that because we got other players to talk about. Zach, I don't want to really talk about Jose Abreu's projection because it's about what you imagine. And anyway, you can read it. What I want to know, I'm going to I'm going to go off script here. And I want to know if Things continue, and I believe your write-up um, skews toward more like, I'll believe it when I see it uh, as he keeps being, you know, the, his demise has been predicted a few times already. And, and I think your attitude is, I'll believe it when I see it beyond just, you know, a m- modest sloping. Uh, what I want to know is if the White Sox, <laughs> if the 2022 season's played, White Sox can put together, let's say, a couple pennants uh, or continue this streak to maybe five playoffs in a row, whether or not maybe they win it all or not, with Abreu as a very key contributor. Is this a guy, crazy off script here, is this a guy we could talk about, about being a Hall of Famer? He's already broken 
I think if you include his Cuban League stats, he's already broken 400 career home runs. I think he has a very good shot of finishing with close to 600, 550 professional home runs, which um, may cause some to kind of roll their eyes as far as including that stuff goes. But uh, it's not it's not his fault that he wasn't able to, to come play here until he was 27, 28. Yeah. Uh, if he does end up in that, you know, give him three, four, five solid years and he does kind of end up in that 400 homer range, uh, you know, plays 10, 15 years in the big leagues, most of which with the same team while being uh, the real spiritual leader of that team for a very long time, then yeah, absolutely. I think you've got a case. Um, yeah, yeah. Short answer. Yes. <laughs> I think it's a lot less far-fetched. I think it's a lot less yeah. far-fetched than folks might think, because I mm-hmm. think maybe five, 10 years from now, what we will appreciate is the fact that we never got to see his best years. Mm -hmm. Uh, This isn't a Paul Konerko hall of very good, was very Mm -hmm. good for a while, but just never quite had that peak, never quite hit that level of transcendence. You know, I think it's pretty fair to say, probably looking at how these things translate and there have been systems to try to, you know, level, level the different leagues into a common denominator. And if Jose Abreu is in, you know, comes up to the major leagues at age 23, he's probably a lock for 500 home runs and 2000 RBI. So I lean towards, yes, barring a real sudden downturn. I think there's going to be real conversation. And and let's not forget that intangibles, which I guess are either the most important factor in electing uh, hall of fame players or shouldn't be considered at all because we're all just robots or likely somewhere in between all those intangibles, everything off the field, you couldn't get a higher rating across the board for Jose Abreu in terms of leadership, in terms of sacrifice, in terms of just getting out there all the time. Uh, so, you know, those things can only help him. Maybe even if it comes down to years down the line where maybe a veterans committee is making a decision on him. So yeah, he's put himself on the map. I would have never, never thought it even just a couple of years ago, but he's put himself on the map. Zach, back to the article. Uh, come on back, everybody. Come on. You can, we're not, we're, we're back on the article. We're back on point here. Uh, Luis Robert, uh, obviously he's going to be great. How great is what's up for question? It does seem in this instance, it's a bit of a pivotal season for him, whether he becomes truly elite or he's just a really, really, really great player. And it seems to be connected to uh, his, his walk rate. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is a guy who could go up, you know, without a bat and be a positive player uh, all season. Uh, his, his basement can only be so far down and, what's his likelihood of actually becoming elite or is he a guy that we're going to just say, well, if only he could have just got that one last piece, he'd be up there with, with the tops in the game. Yeah. I think there's a solid chance, as solid of a chance as any White Sox players had in a long time to being a really, truly transcendent star. Uh, The plate discipline profile is so scary though. He still, he really cut down his chase rate a lot and struck out a lot less this past year, which is great, but he walks, he's so aggressive and he walks so little and it's, uh, if you want to get to that, you know, Ronald Acuna, Fernando Tatis, Juan Soto, you know, Mike Trout levels of top five player in the game, which is where I think a lot of people, I don't want to say are expecting him to be, but where there's a kind of a, a kind of healthy anticipation that he could very well get there. And he, as long as he's only walking 5% of the time, he's probably just not going to be able to get there. Uh, that comes with a lot of caveats because the projection systems have almost no past history with them to work from. You know, you have four fifty games in 2020 and another 50, 55 games in, right. in 2021 and only one real full minor league season before that. So there's uh, there's, there could very well be adjustments being made that the system is not seeing. And I tend to give players a lot of the benefit of the doubt there because they are smart for the most part and they know what they're doing and they know their craft. Uh, 
but until he shows us that he can take a walk more than 5% of the time uh, until he shows us that, that, you know, lack of chasing sliders on the, you know, low and outside is actually not a thing like he showed late in 2020, then yes, absolutely. He could very well, sorry, 2021, he could very well ascend to that tier of really being a top five, top six player in the game. Uh, until that happens, it's, there's, it's more safe to say he's quote unquote only <laughs> in the, the, the comparables I use. This is not to say like he's similar to these guys as players, but the sort of George Springer, uh, Aaron judge, Kyle Tucker, Brian Reynolds, all of whom are getting like $150 million contracts and are really great all-star caliber players. Uh, but I might, I might be inclined to looking at this projection and thinking about why it's coming out this way. Yeah. I might be a little tempted to put a lid on the people expecting him to come out of the gate hitting like he did last year. I don't think that's, I, I would love to see that happen. I think there's a decent chance it happens, but, uh, to expect it to, to expect him to pick up where he left off last year. I think we might want to take that down a notch. Well, kudos to Pantera. I mean, the guy was on crutches half the season. He was pr- mm-hmm. pretty much almost the war leader for, for the team, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is, uh, and this was a good team. This was in some hundred. He didn't run at all last year, hardly either, which I yeah. would expect to change with okay. healthy legs. Um, a little more aggressiveness on the base pads too. So yeah, a lot of variance there, a lot of variance, but okay. Uh, Zach Lucas Giolito. I'm I'm lost. Uh, he was our ace. He threw a no hitter. Uh, at this point, in terms of true rotation, and we'll get to that at the end of the podcast. <laughs> in terms of true <laughs> rotation, he'd slot in maybe a, a number three, just based on these uh, uh, Pakoda projections. Now, granted, he's not projected for a bad season, but those of us who sort of uh, had our hearts rise as we saw in 2019 uh, are finding some of our expectations tempered based on the fact that he's just He's looking like very good. Yeah, I think that's fair. He's probably not a true ace. He can, he will have games and he will have stretches where he pitches like a true ace. Uh, But these, you know, ERA is a cumulative stat. If he finishes with a 3.7 ERA, it's not necessarily because he's not more talented than that. It's probably because he's going to have some of those seven, eight run stinkers like we saw at a few Mm -hmm. different junctures this past year. Um, Unless he really kind of rediscovers the fastball command that he had for long stretches in 20, 2019. And even this past year, he's probably just going to be inconsistent like that. You know, he's six, six, he's got a giant wingspan. He's got pretty complex mechanics. Uh, it's going to be hard for him. And he knows his command wasn't great last year. And I'm sure he's doing a lot of work to, to improve it, but it's just going to be hard for him to maintain the level of being able to put the ball where he wants to consistently enough to, you know, make 30 starts and avoid enough home runs and avoid enough blowups to be able to keep the ERA around three, three, one, three, two, which is where we saw it in, in 2019. Uh, again, which isn't to say that in a playoff start, you're going to want a lot of other guys out there. Mm-hmm. I'll take my chances with him as much as damn near anybody else in the league. Um, this side of a Scherzer or, or a DeGrom, you know, but yeah, I think it's, what this projection is telling us is not so much to be down on him as a pitcher, but just to recognize that, you know, you might get 20, 25, even, you know, not 25, you might get 20 quality starts out of him, which is going to be great. But when he doesn't have it, yeah, he's going to walk. We saw it in the ALDS. He's going to lose it really quickly. He's not going to be able to get through four innings. He's probably going to end up getting tagged with four, five, six runs. Uh, 
unless, you know, we get a manager with a pulse who can read his pictures and stuff. Uh, so obligatory dig there. Yeah. So uh, I don't think, you know, I think it's easy to look at this projection and kind of be weirded out and kind of freak out a little bit. Uh, but I think it's pretty much in line with who he's shown to be over the past two years, um, which is not quite consistent enough to be a true ace, but still on any given day, probably one of the 10 or 15 best pitchers, maybe 20 best pitchers in the league. Yeah. Patreon bonus track content recording right after this. Zach and Brett kick Tony Lewis in the hiney for an hour. Okay, uh, but that's another podcast. Um, okay, but uh, realistically going forward, uh, what we're thinking is a little bit more 2021 Lucas Giolito, a little bit less 2019 Lucas Giolito. And yeah, I mean, and that's a relatively small difference ultimately yeah. in terms of in terms of results. Uh, but I think the inconsistency issues that people had some problems with this past year uh, are going to, they're not going to go away unless he manages to improve his command a bit. And I, I just think I, how much of it is narrative to 2019. It was, you know, him and Moncada were two real bright spots on a team that was not really expected to do all that much. That was the future arriving. And it was really easy to get excited about that. Uh, and in retrospect, maybe look on him with a little bit, rose-colored glasses. I don't think Giolito is actually that much different in 2021 than he was in 2019. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's just the weight of expectations. And I think, I don't think what we see out of GL in 22 is going to be out of line with what we've seen in the next three years. I just don't think we want to project that ace label on him like maybe we could have entering 2020 or 2021. Lucas, consider that extension. Unless Jerry's being really, 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 really nasty about it, which he's, he's doing nothing right now, of course. But consider it, just, just consider it from your friends at Southside Sox. Hey, great segue, Zach, because Yohan Mankata's next on the list. And we're probably going to skip through some guys after this, but Yohan Mankata gets his power back per BP, and I need you to tell me why. Man, I got no clue. I got no <laughs> clue. Uh, other than he has more natural power than he hit with last year. Yeah. His swing, you know, he was on pace for about 30, 31, 32 homers in 2019. And I think that's definitely on the higher side of what we'll ever get from him just based on his swing and his approach. You know, he's, uh, he's a line drive hitter who goes to all fields. He, you know, probably could, if he wanted to hit, uh, change his approach and hit 240 with, you know, 35, maybe even 40 homers. He does have that kind of pop, but, uh, yeah, they're saying these projections think he's going to be back in that 2025 homer range, which is great. I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, he wasn't healthy for a lot of the last two years, whether it be from COVID or or otherwise. But I think, I don't know, if I had to guess, I would say that the the crux of it is that when he is healthy and when he's hitting the ball, there's just not too many guys who are going to hit the ball better. Uh, and he is, you know, his baseline is pretty high. I mean, we saw last year what he can do in a bad year. I think no one would deny that last year was not necessarily a great season by his standards and he didn't play that great. And he still wound up, you know, I, I don't know what his numbers were off the top of my head, but those 14, 15 homers, uh, 260, 270 batting average, if that's the low end of what we're talking about here, then yeah, I think it's pretty fair to forecast, uh, you know, some of that power coming back if, if you know, we're not going to have to deal with COVID and, uh, you know, his skill set, his skill set is just elite enough that it's comfortable saying, yeah, 2021 was probably just a bad year. 
Johan also needs to move out of Alexei Ramirez's locker. I don't know if he's in his locker or not, but clearly there are elements of that locker that have gotten into the Johan stream because my goodness, he is pained and aggrieved on every single moment he's on the field. I just want to see less rolling around in the dirt and more uh, not being hurt. Uh, okay, same question as Grandal. Zach, I got to ask you, what what what's the uh, what's the haze warp for uh, Johan Mankata not being in con- a contentious figure for White Sox and all our fans uh, in 2022? Because boy, oh boy, it seems like people. Oh, I don't know the reasons. He's he. Uh, I guess he sort of looks the same as Grandel, so I can figure one reason. But um, he's very he's a controversial guy, and uh, as you already pointed out in his let's say worst season, it was pretty solid the White Sox are getting their money's worth so I'm not really sure why his controversy warp is as high as it is yeah I I think there's two things at play one is that it's kind of turned into such a stupid flashpoint (laughs) that there are now there's people who are going to take up that argument for the sake of trolling where it is going to have no basis (laughs) in reality um and there's also the top prospect expectation. You know, when you're a top one or two prospect in the game, when you get that label label put on you, people want you to be Mike Trout. People want you to be Bryce Harper, not counting, you know, for every one of them, there is a Jerickson Profar. Um, there is an Andrew Benintendi. And for Moncada to be like a perennial fringe to solid all-star is a great outcome. And if his worst year is an average player, like he was an mm-hmm. average player or a little bit better by most measures mm-hmm. last year, yeah. people say, what the hell? The number one prospect in baseball is not supposed to be an average player. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. He's a good guy. He's a good player. And uh, you just got to let that go because mm-hmm. those things are different every year. You know, it depends on the strength of the class. It depends on a lot of different things. So, you know what? He's not going to be Ronald Acuna. And that's okay. There's only one of them. There's only one Mike Trout. You know, if everyone, if every number one prospect in baseball turned into Juan Soto, you know, or panned out like Mike Trout, panned out like Bryce Harper, panned out like Manny Machado, uh, then those guys would be a lot less valuable. It's still hit or miss. And if you're going to get an all-star out of it, then great. You didn't get Jerickson Profar because that can very easily happen. Acuna, Soto, Machado, Talk to me when you put together a pen, uh, when you put together a pop song like Yohan Makata has, okay? Then we'll talk. All right, we're going to skip a few guys because uh, it seems to me like they're about what you think they're going to be. Don't skip reading them. In fact, pause right now. Go read the next couple guys because we're going to jump to some crazy, I won't even say disappointments, but uh, some very dour outlooks for Andrew Vaughn, Garrett Crochet, Gavin Sheets, Adam Engel. Now, some of those are maybe more surprising than others. We probably don't even have to talk about Adam Engel, uh, but uh, Garrett Crochet, maybe in particular, well, Crochet and Vaughn, BP is, projection's pretty down on those guys. Bearish, yeah. I think the Vaughn projection uh, was the one that stuck out to me the most in terms of not aligning at all with what I see and think Uh, I'm on the record as thinking that Vaughn is headed for a breakout. I'm very high on his hitting ability and baseball prospectus and Pakoda are just not there at all. They're projecting his median outcome to be basically a average to slightly below average hitter with pretty much nothing in the way of contributions uh, on defense or on the bases, which all adds up to a replacement level player, which is not good at all. Uh, And the biggest 
the biggest word of caution there and the reason that I'm not totally freaking out about it is the same thing as with Robert, where it doesn't have any history to work on. Andrew Vaughn has 55 games at, at a ball between the major leagues and uh, the Pac-12. So naturally, yeah, he struggled at times his rookie year. He was a really good hitter for two months and then he kind of got hurt and tailed off towards the end. Uh, but all the formula really has to go off of are those minor league games and the cumulative totals that we saw last year, which were not particularly inspiring. Uh, so I think that the lack of context that the projection system has is particularly glaring with Vaughn. And I would be pretty surprised. It's saying that, you know, there's a pretty small chance that he ends up popping more than 20 homers next year, which I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, I think the power is going to be there more than it gives him credit for, but you know, he doesn't bring a lot to the table in the field or on the base paths and the bar for hitting at those positions at first base and even at left field and DH is really, really, really high. And if, the system, if Pakoda doesn't see that potential in him at all in the slightest, which it isn't right now, that's what gives me pause, even though I'm taking that projection with a grain of salt more more than others. Uh, it just doesn't see the upside there, which does concern me quite a bit. Uh, crochet, yeah, that projection is is not good. I mean, four ERA, a lot of walks, a fair number of strikeouts, but nothing unusual for a reliever. I mean... Yeah, that's and having watched him for most of I mean I'm not I'm not convinced it's wrong either. Uh he didn't look particularly special for for a lot of last year. Um you know, relievers who can throw 98 99 from the left side are not nearly as rare as they were 10 years ago. So uh if it's projecting him to be a pretty average reliever, uh I think I mean you got to let him see if he can do it as a starter, man, because if you're 18 months out of using a first round draft pick on that, like, mm, like come on, you got to uh, yeah, so that one that one scares me, and I'm a lot less convinced, or I'm a lot less certain that it might be wrong than I am with Vaughn's projection. So uh, mixed bag, mixed it bag. It doesn't it doesn't feel like uh, uh, you know I've been away a, a long time, Zach. It's the off season. It doesn't feel like I've been mm-hmm. away at all, but I have forgotten. Look at me, I've forgotten the official Southside Sox pronunciation guide. Thank you, without even scolding me that he is now back to being Luis Robert, not Robert. It's, it's really, it's hard to, you can't really say it with an American accent. You have to say it while you're rolling the Robert. Sure. And yeah, it's hard to say in flow. So I think Robert is the closest thing that we're, we're going to get to how he actually pronounces it himself. <laughs> Which is a much better effort and good for us. We're going to try to lead that pack, even though I completely whiffed and my first attempt, but Hey, it wouldn't be the first season where I struck out in my first plate appearance. Uh, hey, Good news, Zach, and you got to explain this one to me. Essentially, the entire rotation is like about the same. Roughly, I think Lance Lynn qualifies, I guess, as the ace in terms of just warp. But basically, everybody's sort of like two, two warp. And um, Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech have some very, very bright projections, including Michael Kopech. I am not sure how he is going to get a sub three ERA, but he is going to this year, in addition to just notching over a hundred innings. uh, Those seem like uh, they are very sunny and not particularly um, average projections for the back end of the rotation. 
Yeah, they're really the numbers are really buying heavily on on the stuff and the strikeout numbers there. I'm really having difficulty wrapping my head around how much Picota loves Dylan Cease. Uh, it's projecting him to slice, you know, a half run off his ERA while not really making too many gains in terms of walks or or I mean, it's hard to gain from where he was at at strikeouts. He led the league in strikeouts per nine this past year, uh, and. I would love that three, five ERA to materialize, but it's a little bit similar, a little bit similar to Giolito in that even more so than Giolito, the command is not there. The control is flat out bad a lot of the time. Uh, And unless that gets better, he's going to have those starts where he walks six guys in three innings. And when he gives up a bunch of doubles in a row, because he can't locate anything for Jack, you know, I, unless unless the command gets better to the point where he's gets those walks down to like three per nine instead of four per nine uh i have trouble seeing that era coming that far down but the system knows things that i don't maybe so i'm i'm happy i actually don't see i don't i can totally envision kopech getting that era below three uh it's it's just the volume more than anything else and whether he'll be able to execute we know the talent is there it's just questions like he was fastball slider for the large majority of last season. Is he going to have a third pitch? Is he going to be able to get through the order a third time? Or is it going to be uh, more of a Dylan Cease thing where you're not going to be able to rely on him uh, going more than three or four innings on any, any given day. So that's where the value cap is there. But uh, yeah, hundred innings at a three ERA for him actually seems pretty, pretty reasonable, which is you got to be really talented to say that I'm, I'm buying on Copex projection more than I am ceases however if if cease ends up being the same thing that he was last year that's perfectly fine i think if you get 275 innings of sub four era ball from the two of them combined i think it's a tremendous success uh so yeah very very sunny again kind of i'm believing it when i see it's the other end of the i'll believe it when i see it spectrum um you always take these things with a little bit of pause and a little bit of a grain of salt so while i'm not necessarily like I'm not buying into the Abreu and TA downturn uh, very much because they're consistently overperforming those projections. I'm going to wait and see on to see if Cease and Kopech can get over those walk issues, those throwing 30, 35 pitches to get out of an inning issues. Uh, you know, those have starts where you give up seven runs because you can't find the plate and, you know, you melt down when a guy gets on base. I want to see that that's going away before I get excited about either of those projections. Yeah. I don't think anybody would argue with better. I think we would all agree better. I would certainly say better, but this is better than better. And I would love it. And, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe, um, maybe that's um, sponsored and paid recon content in the projections uh, to somehow take some of the heat off the fact that there is no depth among the starting uh, pitching um, which, of course, is this, the, the seg to the Rodon in the room, Zach Hayes, uh, especially given what the projected innings load is for Carlos, free agent, unnecessary free agent, Carlos Rodon. Uh, he would be, like he was in 2021, the ace of this staff, of course. Lack of innings would, would put him more in the Lance Lynn category. But uh, seeing this projection, which again, I don't think uh, BP has any particular vested interest in being pro Carlos Rodan, uh, it can, can't help but make you more irritated 
that the White Sox chose not to do what seemed like an absolute reflex action to say, come on back for $18 million, Carlos. Yeah, they got to find a way to bring him back. He's the Pakoda is fully buying him as an elite pitcher, which is not which is not always the case with one year breakouts. Like you know, Kendall Graveman, for example, does not actually have a very good projection. It's not buying his breakout, but it sees, uh, like I've said from day one with Carlos, is that his his breakout was very real. You can't fake the kind of stuff that he had and they're projecting him for only 124 innings because he has never really pitched a full healthy season in his career. But I'm on the record and on many, many podcasts here saying that I'm not particularly concerned about his injuries and that, you know, how he finished the year. Uh, you know, you still got Dallas Keiko slated to make 30 starts in these projections. You realistically are not going to get more than again, 40, 45 starts and 275 innings out of Kopech and cease like ah oh man he's you got to find a way to bring him back and i will say that given how the collective bargaining negotiations are going one of the few concrete pieces of news and adjustments that we've one of the few agreements that have been reported on is that they're basically uh scrapping the free agent compensation system you know you're not going to be penalized to draft pick they're they're totally redoing that whole thing so there is a part of me that wonders, okay, maybe they knew a, he wasn't going to accept the qualifying offer uh, because he's going to get more than 18 million over one year. And if they had an inkling, if Jerry had a good idea that the system was going to be scrapped in these negotiations anyway, maybe it makes a little more sense. Uh, I'm still not really going to buy it because they, <laughs> they need to, I, I need to see where he's going. You out. I don't know. I need to see where he's going if, if before I really make any judgment, because if it's look, if they can find a way, if they bring him back to round out that rotation, great. No harm, no foul. If they don't, it really still is a, what are you doing moment? Because I, I think one of the 108 guys said it on Twitter where it's like you asking, you know, where is the room for additional starting pitching? Uh, because you st- you have Kopex st- stepping into the rotation you have for better or worse, as of now, Keuchel is still on the roster. And, you know, if, if you're not making good pitching additions, because you got to make room for Dallas Keuchel starts, then you're not going to win anything in the playoffs. Uh, You can never have enough pitching. I don't care. Just bring him back because they need that depth. Uh, It's great to to dream on those season Kopech projections, but uh, you know, they're volatile. If one or both of those guys underperforms, what do you have left? You have Giolito and you have Lynn, and then you have Jack all else. So I think that Rodon bringing back Carlos as that third or fourth, that third elite starter is hugely important because that's, that's the difference in the end, maybe between that 94 win projection and you bring him back into the fold. And maybe that is what helps you take you up to that 96, 97, 98 real uh, cream of the crop uh, of the league. So I <laughs> home, yeah. field, home field and everything. Uh, Zach, I'm going to, um script a dance or write a prose poem or compose a folk song that says when your pitcher gives you five war and half a season he's paid for his next season just bring him back it's free money but yeah, it's giving him a blank check man just do it like come on man you know. <laughs> or else you're gonna feel really dumb when he's pitching game four for the yankees against us in the alcs next year god forbid knock ouch, on wood whatever ouch, you know ouch, ouch, ouch. well yeah let's hope let's hope they have some sort of plan because that one Again, bearing a lead, whoa, at the bottom of the article. Oh, boy, I was feeling so good. And I thought, well, gosh darn, how can I feel bad about a 94 projection team from Pocota of all places? Well, I found a reason to be a little bit because as you just pointed out, 
Lord knows we got a full season from the guy. We're not even, we're, we're just projecting like a half, two thirds season again. That's your difference of, of taking you over into that truly elite 95 plus win team that is going to get home field. That is going to have a real advantage as this contention window. I don't know. Is it opening? Is it closing? I'm so confused about contention windows, Zach. I just thought my team should compete every year. So I'm still confused. You're going to have to write the song and sing that one to me about contention windows. And I will work on the Carlos Rodan, come on back. It's free money, whatever song. Uh, maybe for next podcast. Maybe for next podcast, Zach. Um, terrific, terrific work. Thank you. Very exhaustive. Uh, if you made it to the end, both of this podcast and of Zach's article, congratulations. You are very much missing baseball and very much looking forward to a bright 2022 for the White Sox, which, hey, despite all the lockout talk, we're still hoping for a really bright, awesome season of somewhere more than 100 games. And we're going to see about that. We'll probably talk about that sort of stuff in the next podcast. But for now, we are looking at the projections and they are pretty sunny from the unlikeliest of places. Baseball Prospectus. Thank you, Baseball Prospectus, for lending this information to us and uh, Zach Hayes for interpreting it for us. Um, Hey, what do you say next time we do a podcast, you hop on with me? No guarantees, but I'll I'll give it my best shot. (laughs) All right. Uh, you will get the engraved invitation. Thanks for a great piece. So, you know. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. As always, we wouldn't be here without you. Uh, hope you enjoyed the article and the podcast. Go back and read it again because I'm sure you missed some stuff.